Hey everyone, this is Cass with a quick note about the show. Today's episode is going to sound different in terms of style and content, but I really like it and I hope that you will too. She said to me, um, and I actually, this is the one line I remember from the whole thing. She's like, after, you know, doing, being in this position for over a decade, I'm constantly surprised by how much pain women will endure before they come in and say something's wrong. Some sentences you hear once and you never forget. They stick out in your memory, like grains of sugar on a marble countertop when you run your hands across it. For me, one of those sentences came during a humanities lecture in undergrad. It featured Tiresias, the blind prophet of Apollo, the one that tragically, in the traditional sense that is, foreshadowed Oedipus' identity, later revealing the king of Thebes in sensuous circumstances. Tiresias himself had many stories. In one of them, Professor Lyon told us, Prior to his blindness, the young seer saw two snakes mating while herding sheep. Tiresias supposedly feared that the snakes would harm his herd of sheep. Upon striking one of them dead, Tiresias angered the goddess Hera for some unknown reason, who, in a bout of anger, turned Tiresias into a woman as punishment. Because, Professor Lyon casually commented, the worst punishment is being a woman. I remember hearing the entire lecture hall inhale. The worst punishment for a man is not having your organs exposed with hungry vultures pecking at your liver, is not damned to be dying of thirst while surrounded by water, not forced to push a giant boulder up a hill an infinite number of times. The worst punishment is to live life as a woman. Welcome to Everything is Public Health, a podcast about public health must address the obstacles and challenges women face, both in life and in their health. Because public health is about the health of everyone, systematic issues that plague the health of literally half the human population deserves attention. Side note, if your response to what I've just said is, what about men's health, this is prejudice, then you are part of the reason why we need to do an episode on women's health. I said women's health is important. I did not say only women's health is important. From accounts in history and good journalism over the last decade, we know one pain women face is the tendency for people to just, well, not believe them. If you don't know the term gaslighting already, chances are either you or a woman you know have experienced it. It is the deliberate act to undermine someone's reality to manipulate their perception against their own cognition, emotions, and identity. For example, classic gaslighting lines include, You're being too emotional. You're being too sensitive. He was just joking. He was just having fun and complimenting you. Or, You're crazy. Okay, You're insane for thinking that. Are you sure? That doesn't sound right. You're probably mistaken. I think you're overthinking it. He doesn't sound like a person that would do that. I'm pretty sure you made a mistake. It's all in your head. Or something even more aggressive. That's not true. That did not happen. You're just making that up because you're crazy. Set aside the mental health implication of all this, how else does gaslighting affect a woman's health? What if physicians do it? Chapter 1. Lauren. I was about 20 years old. Um, I was in undergrad and I had for several years have had a history at that point with gallstones um, and have been experiencing really severe gallbladder issues for 
a few months, but I was halfway across the country, away from home, away from doctors that I grew up with. So I was very hesitant to find a new doctor until I called my family physician and they were kind of like, yeah, you need to go to an urgent care. Like you can't put off your symptoms any longer. I was like, okay, I'll go. So I went to an urgent care and after sitting in the room for like 45 minutes, a provider comes in and they start talking to me and asking me, oh, am I a student? What am I studying? At that time, I was pre-med, so I was taking a lot of hard classes, um, and we kind of bonded over that. But then they were starting to ask my symptoms, and I was like, oh, I have middle back pain. It radiates um, to the front, very common symptoms of gallbladder disease. And the physician looked at me and said, oh, well, women carry most of their stress in their back, so it's just stress pain from your course load. So far, you may be thinking... She's complaining about lower back pain. It's not an outrageous connection that the doctor suspects stress. However, I don't know what science is behind the phrase women carry their stress in their back. I don't know if that's legit, but whatever. Putting that aside, back pain and stress is not a crazy connection. Um, And I told them, I was like, oh, well, I have a history of gallstones. Are you sure that that is not it? Like, I would like to know I'm away from home. And I've been putting up with these symptoms for a really long time. Surely, at this point, any reasonable physician would respond to this new information by taking actions to either rule out or confirm whether this is a gallbladder issue, right? Right? And they kind of just questioned me and they were like, oh, you have a history of gallstones? Well, does anyone in your family have a history of gallbladder issues? And at the time, um, and that I was aware of, I said, no. And she goes, oh, then I highly doubt it's that. So you're just stressed and here's a prescription. Um, Take some lighter classes. And of course, this had consequences. And that was in the beginning of November. Um, By the time Thanksgiving came around, I was in so much pain. Um, I called my mom and I wasn't supposed to go home for that Thanksgiving. But I called my mom and I said, I want to come home. So when I was home, we made a doctor's appointment. And upon an ultrasound, they were like, yeah, you need your gallbladder out like very soon. This also affected Lauren's care seeking behavior going forward. And I never went back to that urgent care. Anytime I needed something, I would make sure to go to anywhere but there. In the medical context, healthcare gaslighting is when a woman's symptoms, concerns and complaints are dismissed or ignored. Historically, the excuse used to be hysteria. Now it's stress, a new diet, or the frivolous woman stuff like periods, menstrual cramps, and hormones. For example, this also happened to Lauren. I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, which causes cysts on my ovaries, and sometimes those burst and can be super painful. So when I was actually still in high school, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and being so, so sick. Um, To the point where I woke my parents up and asked them to take me to the ER. And it was like midnight. And so my dad brings me into the ER and... And to be clear, she knew at that point she had PCOS. The physicians, theoretically, through her chart, should also know that she had PCOS. I tell them, like, I have really, really bad cramps. I'm extremely nauseous. I just utterly feel like... Redacted. (laughs) 
is like the best way to explain it. And kind of the moment I started saying I had cramps and that my pain was in my uterus area that they kind of were like, well, it's probably just your period. A woman was writhing in pain from a burst of ovarian cyst, and they had the audacity to look her in the eye and tell her she's having menstrual cramps. And I'm like, I don't think so. Like, <laughs> I'm not on my period. Like, this is not it. How many women experienced what Lauren went through? How many women suffered from pain and disease in their reproductive organs and been told that's just what it feels like to be a woman? Chapter 2. Sienna When collecting interviews for this episode, a few themes appeared organically. After physicians conduct their standard panels of diagnostics and found nothing remarkable, there is a tendency to convince the patient that there's nothing wrong. Here is Sienna's story. So I, I mean, I guess it technically goes back to my first period. Um, I had, you know, heavy cramping and pain. Um, my first period was super painful um, and it was kind of always that way. Every other period was worse. And that was, let's see, right as I was going into high school when I started my period. Um, but I didn't really think much of it because I knew cramps were painful, like, to expect discomfort, that sort of a thing. Um, and obviously didn't have a reference for what like kind of pain is normal or not normal. After she started taking hormonal birth controls, the symptoms improved slightly, but the menstrual pain was still there and she started having pain during sex. Naturally, she sought help. And she, you know, went through a suite of tests for STIs, found nothing, you know, did a pelvic exam, didn't find anything out of the ordinary. And so basically she said, you know, if this continues to get worse, let me know. But otherwise, like, you're fine. This won't be the last time Sienna goes through this cycle of going to the physician. They find nothing and they tell her she is fine. She goes through this process again. But then when, you know, I started kind of on and off having pain again, and it did return, basically it was the same, all the same tests, the pelvic exam, everything, nothing was out of the ordinary. So it was, you know, unless this gets much worse, you're fine. And she goes through this process again. Late summer of 2015, I had like a really super painful period. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't use a tampon. It hurt really, really bad when I tried to use a tampon. I went back to the doctor. This time they did an ultrasound, both a standard ultrasound, also transvaginal, and they didn't find anything. Did a whole suite of STI testing again, didn't find anything, and sent me home and said, you know, if this can if this kind of resolves itself, then you shouldn't worry about it. And again, just remember the pain was worse than it had ever been. Um, I was at my partner's family's house and was like sitting on the couch watching TV and trying not to cry because it hurt so bad. It really hurt super bad to use the restroom to the point where I stopped eating for a few days. I wasn't eating. So I went back to the a different OBGYN who pretty immediately said, this sounds exactly like endometriosis. This diagnosis helped. And I was like, so relieved, but also, you know, it's frustrating. But at the moment, in the moment, I was just relieved to know, like, in, for these last seven, eight years that I've 
felt like something's been wrong and that I've been saying something's wrong. You know, nobody really cared to go the extra mile to figure out, like no one really thought that I was right. But unfortunately it wasn't the end. And so we did an exploratory laparoscopy and she found nothing. She did say like, you know, I'm, I don't doubt that you're experiencing pain. I just don't, you know, if you want to continue to try and figure out what this is, um, we can, you know, schedule another appointment and maybe talk about next steps. I mean, in her mind, that was, she'd done the surgery, didn't find anything. So that was ruled out. A quick side note, an exploratory laparoscopy is not an effective way to diagnose endometriosis. It's possible to not find anything, but that does not definitively prove that you do not have endometriosis. I want to focus on this moment because while Sienna's story isn't over, I believe this is at least the right attitude. Acknowledge the patient's experience and offer continuous support. In the other instances, after all those tests and diagnostics came back normal, instead of saying they don't know what's going on, the physicians instead said, you're fine, there's nothing wrong with you, go home when the patient is obviously not okay. The messages I was getting were, well, we ran our standard tests and they all came back normal. So, you know, you're fine, even though you say you're experiencing pain. What does this constant undermining of the patient's experience do to the patient's mind? And so I just thought, again, like, okay, this must be normal. This must be a normal amount of pain that women experience. Like, I just made a big deal out of something. I was a little bit embarrassed. Am I crazy? Am I, you know, making this up? Most women probably experience this and I'm just being overly sensitive. Like all of those things sort of come back to you. Like there's nothing there that's causing this, you know. The trust that I had in myself was eroded so quickly in retrospect, right? Like I did not trust myself. I thought I'm, you know, being too sensitive. I'm, you know, all of these things that are bad that women are, <laughs> you know, like I didn't think about it consciously that way at the time, but like being too sensitive, being too emotional, I definitely, you know, in various parts of my life have always been aware of that as something that people might perceive me as and that I want to avoid. And so I think that played a large role in my comfort level and ability with advocating for myself, especially when I was younger. Eventually, after almost a decade, Sienna was diagnosed with and treated for endometriosis, which, to put it simply, is a condition where the uterine tissue grows outside of the uterus. Chapter 3. Jess. So, I guess I'll kind of take it from the top. By the way, Jess's mic is broken, so I apologize for the poor audio quality. Jess experienced similar struggles, except her ailment is joint-related. When I was about eight years old, I got Lyme disease, and that was treated, you know, fairly quickly. But I've essentially been experiencing joint pain pretty much constantly since then. Eventually, the pain started to affect not just her joints, but her muscles as well. Once I got to college, um, I started getting muscle aches too. So my joints ache all the time, my whole body aches all the time. The latest installment of all of this, when things have really, you know, my health has gotten to the point where it kind of interferes with day-to-day -day life. Like Sienna, Jess sought all the medical help she could. I've been to everyone from my PCP to a cardiologist, you know, to an allergist. 
I've seen several rheumatologists. I even went to a naturopath, kind of embarrassingly. Of course, she has been imaged from head to toe, poked and prodded, had countless blood tests, but these diagnostic efforts mostly all came back. Everything has come back normal, normal, normal. Jess's case may be a genuine case of medical mystery, but that's not the point. Medicine does not have all the answer, and perhaps it never will. The issue is not that they couldn't find anything. The issue is, how do physicians deal with this? They could admit defeat. So I went to my general doctor when I was a freshman in college and was like, I'm kind of achy and tired all the time. Okay, we'll get some blood work done. Everything was normal. So she was like, I don't know, have some prescription ibuprofen. They could really commit to one idea. I actually went back to the same rheumatologist that I had seen in middle or high school, and he was like, oh, you just need to sleep better. So he did prescribe me something to help with my sleep. And, you know, that summer I did feel somewhat better. But at the end of the summer, I went back to him and he was like, great, you don't need that anymore. You're totally fine have a great life. Obviously, that didn't really work because I went back to school and, you know, things got a lot worse. And when I went back to see this doctor again, he essentially, like, wouldn't make eye contact with me, like, had no idea what to do with me. Like, he was sort of invested in this theory that I just need to sleep better and I'd be totally fine. They could gaslight the patient. I had previously seen another PCP in the same practice. She was actually like really nice and friendly. And then we talked some more, which is when she basically was like, it's all in your head and you're okay. I just tried not to cry, I think, for the most part. And I just kind of nodded along like, okay, sure. I'm, you know, because I was like, I'm not going to get anywhere by like arguing with her you know she wasn't it wasn't qualified in any way so it was just like yeah I think this is just because of your mental health so that's all it is it's in your head and you need to like get over it or they could really try to gaslight the patient into submission I went to an allergist and you know I got the test where they stick you with all kinds of allergens and see if you react that was all normal. And he essentially told me that I didn't know what I was talking about and that I was fine. He spent probably a good five minutes like trying to talk me out of this idea that there was something wrong with me, <laughs> which was obviously upsetting. All this happened to one person, Jess. I've thought hard about why this happened. Do some physicians believe so much in their craft or perhaps their ego that they cannot possibly imagine a world that they would have no answer? Like, well, my test says you're normal and there's no way that I or my training could be wrong, so you must be normal. Or is this something more subconscious and socially ingrained? Historically, women's symptoms that weren't immediately physical or biological were attributed to hysteria. Hysteria is rooted in the bogus idea that women are these emotionally finicky creatures and sometimes they get quote-unquote too emotional so that they develop these female diseases and there's no cure to it besides telling them to calm down. 
obviously hysteria won't fly as a diagnosis anymore. So we had to be more creative and call it things like stress. And yeah, she was like a psychosomatic, you know. The ingenious thing about this label is that stress and psychosomatic disorders are legitimate things. Being stressed does negatively impact your health. So how do we tell the difference between a problem genuinely related to stress and a problem wrongly blamed on stress? I don't have the answer. Chapter 4. Carrie. Carrie had a lumbar puncture, or LP, done, and the procedure itself went smoothly. However, after her LP, she started to experience debilitating nausea to the point where she can't go to work or do anything productive. She called the hospital that did her LP. This is how I'm feeling like today. I woke up. I was fine. Then two hours ago, I started feeling these symptoms and haven't gone. I'm telling like what it felt like and what I've been trying to do to alleviate that. And the first two times that the nurse had called me, um, she was like, oh, I'm sorry, you're feeling that. That's weird. I'll tell the doctor. And they never followed up. At this point, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Hospitals, doctors, and nurses are busy. And maybe this was just a genuine mistake that they have forgotten that she called. After Carrie's mother called the hospital and demanded a follow-up, Carrie went back, told her doctor her symptoms, which the doctors did not think was attributed to the lumbar puncture. He was basically like, I don't think your nausea is related to the lumbar puncture. Your procedure went well, which I think I described to you. My procedure, like, I realized that they finished by the time they'd gone. I didn't feel much except for, like, maybe a sharp, like, poke in the back. He's like, your procedure went well. Kind of made me feel bad about it, too, because he's like, I didn't four other procedures during this week after you and everybody was fine one of them was a 92 year old woman and i called her and she was fine and i was like oh i'm sorry that i'm not the 92 year old woman that recovered quickly but he's like yeah maybe you know it's gastroparesis or a gi symptom or something while we don't know all the details i am not a clinician and therefore can't comment on the physiology or diagnosis here what i want to focus on again is the attitude i don't believe anyone who is not feeling well would find it comforting to know that other patients are doing fine. There is also a defensiveness and dismissiveness with that doctor's statement. He might as well say, this is not on me, this is on you. The doctor suggests it was GI issues. He was like, maybe you ate something this week and it just happened to coincide with the LP. And I literally was like, I ate the same thing as my family and all of them are thriving and fine and living their healthy lives. And like, I don't have a history of GI issues. How food can cause severe nausea, I do not know. He prescribed some medication, which didn't really help. And a few days later, Carrie had to go to the emergency room for debilitating nausea. When I went into the ED, Neuro saw me and he's like, oh, I think this is a migraine. Like, we'll do a bunch of tests, but like, I know that you had a lumbar puncture, but I think this may just be a migraine. And I literally was like, I don't have a history of migraine. Carrie has never had migraines in the past just normal headaches. She reiterated her main complaint of nausea. Now what I'm feeling is this severe nausea that doesn't go away. And he was like, well, okay, like, well, nausea is a side effect of migraine. And I was like, I think I just told you that my headaches in the past, those headaches, they don't interfere with my life just like this. And when I have those headaches, I don't get nausea. And I found myself repeating that a lot, both him and the nurse and then the ED doc that was there but he kind of settled on migraine. Again, I'm not a doctor. I don't know how migraine works. How can we know that the doctor is not making a reasonable diagnosis? I remember he was explaining my case. He was like, she presented with severe headache. And I was like, I don't think I ever said the word severe headache to you once. Oh, that's how. He wasn't even listening. It took over a month before Carrie received a blood patch, the last line treatment for lumbar puncture adverse events. 
Chapter 5. Pushing Back If there's anything that I learned from being around doctors is that they are an extremely defensive group of people. To be fair, they did endure years of learning, testing, and training before practicing medicine, and having a sense of pride in their knowledge and skill is only natural. I can't imagine how frustrating it is to deal with patients who have done their quote-unquote research on Facebook articles, calling their relatives, and some social media text threads. Look no further than the people who refuse vaccines because of the quote-unquote research they did. But at what point does this confidence in their profession becomes counterproductive in the healing process? One of the doctors said Dr. Google for the first time ever, and that was the first time I ever heard that term. And I literally was like, what does that even mean? And I looked it up, and I was like, there are a host of articles about like doctors writing op-eds about frustrations with patients that Google their symptoms because, yeah, I can understand like you might have like some hypochondriac that comes in or somebody that just like looked up their symptoms on WebMD diagnosis and diagnosed themselves with, I don't know, Legionnaire's disease or something. Yeah, that might be frustrating and an affront to all the years you spent on med school. But it felt so demeaning to be pushed aside and like brushed aside the fact that I decided to do my own research. And I was like, so you expect us to go in and just accept what you recommend? I mean, like, this is the first time I'm seeing you. There's no doctor-patient relationship here. Oftentimes, patients don't push back. In the beginning, I was like, you know, you're the one who went to med school. Like, I'll trust what you say. It could also be a fear of confirming stereotypes. No, because I think that would have sort of fed into her impression that I was just, you know, too emotional and not thinking clearly or they did push back but were dismissed um so i did push back a little bit but it was still very very dismissive and very oh it's just stress because women carry stress in their middle back and so that's why you have back pain or because the physicians weren't expected to have to deal with pushbacks and so i was asking all these questions he's actually kind of taken aback that i was asking him like what are the side effects like what impacts would this have on my daily living or like all of these things. And he wasn't actually prepared to answer those questions, but because I was kind of just like, so still shocked by the experiences I had that past week, I kind of learned from that one, you have to ask questions before blindly following your doctor's order. Or because they believed that the physicians had their best interest in mind. I started doing some research online and I actually came across endometriosis and thought to myself, oh, this makes a lot of sense. But I didn't, when I went back into the doctor, want to say, hey, I've WebMD diagnosed myself. Anyway, like I'm not a doctor. I figured they would go through the actual process that they would need to go through to figure out what it is. I expected that if she felt like this was beyond the realm of her expertise, that she would refer me to a specialist, which she never did. This is a real issue that people, particularly women, women of color, experience. As a patient, learn to trust what your body is telling you. Know that your physicians are human and therefore not infallible. Know that not all physicians are good physicians. Understand that it is possible to voice your concerns and push back against your physician while respecting their professional authority. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the omnipresent world of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. 
Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Please also give us a rating and review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page. and You can find the link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health.